they'll sign up in the lobby or see Stephanie Jackson about there. But let's give thanks to the Lord for his kindness in many ways, and then we'll open the way. Still sign up in the lobby or see Stephanie Jackson about there. But let's give thanks to the Lord for his kindness in many ways, and then we'll open the way. Shepherds for our kids, mentors for them, um, and for so many other things. Our breath itself comes from your good hand. Um, the family we sit with, the friends we have chatted with, the Savior we have remembered, it all, it all comes from your hand. And now we pray for another grace, we pray for another mercy that the word would be applied by the Spirit to our hearts. We say yes to that, we welcome that, and uh, look forward to it now in faith in Christ's name. Amen. Um, in her terrible, horrible, wonderful book, uh, Judith Viors introduces us to a young man named Alexander. And if you don't know Alexander, I commend him to you heartily. Uh, you should read his story. But it starts like this. Alexander says, uh, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window, and Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell. It was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And on and on it goes in Alexander's story. It was indeed, from Alexander's perspective, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And, and the reason this book sells is because we all have these days, right? And some of us seem to have a gift for stringing these days together. Uh, back to back to back, they, they stalk us. And I want to suggest that even the Apostle Paul had days like this, and that Acts 27 is a look into these days. And in his life, it's not just a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It is a string of days of unbelievably bad fortune. At least terrible, horrible, no good, very bad uh, weather, as, as we're going to see. Now, if you've been tracking with us in our study of the book of Acts as we've moved towards the end of the book, uh, it's focused in on the life and ministry of Paul, and he's been in a pretty rough stretch already before we even get to chapter 27. Um, he's been falsely accused. He's been nearly beaten to death by a mob. He narrowly escaped a flogging by Roman soldiers. He was arrested. He just escaped, narrowly escaped an assassination attempt by 40 assassins, and he's been in jail for two years. And it really doesn't get any better in our passage where we find Paul having played his Roman citizen card and appealing to Caesar, now on his way as a prisoner to be tried in Rome B. 
before Caesar. In chapter 27, it says, When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship uh, of Adramidium, which was about to sail the ports of the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And the next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So if you read our passage in its entirety, and, and I hope you will later today read all the verses, I'm going to hop through it and focus on a handful of them. Uh, what it contains is a remarkably detailed travelogue, uh, great detail of Paul's voyage by boat from Caesarea over here all the way eventually to Rome. And, and there are stops all along the way, and Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, details them. I think he gives us so much detail in part because he was there. And if you look even back over the few verses that we read, and you'll notice it throughout the travelogue, um, there's a lot of we going on. We did this. We went here. We went there. And Luke is including himself, it seems, in, in the group on the ship with Paul. So evidently he's been able to accompany him. But shortly after this quick stop at Sidon, they left Caesarea, they went to Sidon, and there Paul's friends kind of loaded him up with supplies for the journey, evidently. Um, the journey begins in earnest, and it takes a decidedly different turn. And let me just highlight for you some of the words that are in this section. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. If you drop down to verse 7, they arrived with difficulty. Um, the wind did not allow us to go farther. Verse 8, coasting along it with, with difficulty. Um, down in verse 9, the voyage was now dangerous. And in verse 10, Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. So, so let the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day begin. Okay? Um, it's so bad that Paul is assessing the situation and saying, people are going to die on this journey. This is, this is horrible, terrible kind of thing uh, going on. And he warns them not, not to depart from this place, aptly named Fair Havens. Okay? They have sought refuge from a brewing storm and incredible winds there. Uh, but in spite of Paul's warning, as you read over all the details of it, um, the majority of the crew sides with the pilot of the ship, not with the prisoner, who is Paul. And who could blame him? Okay? If you're picking, are you going to go with the captain of the ship or are you going to go with the prisoner? And they decide um, to go with the prisoner and they continue on. And again, uh, the kind of words, expressions we read here, it is a tempestuous wind okay tempestuous like when you give your 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 toddler sugar and caffeine and deprive him from sleep kind of wind okay that's what we're talking about is happening here some of some of the translations render render it a hurricane like wind um, 
The ship is caught, couldn't face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Um, down in verse 18, they were violently storm-tossed. They had to jettison the cargo. They had to throw the ship's tackle overboard. Neither sun, in verse 20, nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is a day that would put Alexander's day to shame. Um, Even Luke, in that last expression, he includes himself, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Even Luke seems to have lost hope. But at this point in the story, Paul addresses um, the ship, people on the ship with him. And he says, since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Okay, this is not na 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 you should have listened to me. This is Paul setting the stage for them to listen to him now because he, he was right. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. I love the way Paul describes himself. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar in Rome. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Remember those words. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, in spite of Paul's encouragement, uh, the day continues to get so bad weather-wise that the sailors, if you scan down to verse 30... They try to abandon ship. It says, the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So Paul counsels them that they must stay if they are to survive. So Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, it's hard to know whether this is just wisdom. Hey, if the sailors leave in the storm, that's a bad idea. Or if God is giving him prophetic insight here. Perhaps, perhaps a little of both is going on. So the soldiers then cut away the ropes of the ship's lifeboat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, Luke adds, 276 persons in the ship. This is not a rowboat. This is a big ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So, as we watch this unfold, 
Paul makes these, these really, rem- everybody's given up hope on surviving. And he makes these remarkable predictions. No one will perish, uh, but the ship must run aground on some island. And that's exactly what happens. Um, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck, or the bow stuck rather, and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So they run aground on some island just like Paul said had to happen, and they are all saved. They all make it to shore, even the floaters, right? The guys who can't swim, they're hanging on to planks and pieces of the ship. They all make it too. So since, in all likelihood, you're not booking a Mediterranean cruise anytime soon, how, how does this help us? What is, what is this travelogue of Luke's do for us. And I, I just want to underscore um, three things from Paul's shipwreck that I believe are intended by God in this passage um, to, to shape our own terrible, horrible days uh, when they come and they will come. And the first is simply I want you to notice that all of this hardship happens to Paul when he's smack dab in the middle of the will of God. He is exactly where God wants him to be. So he's on his way to Rome, right? As a prisoner, he's on his way to Rome. And you remember why he's going to Rome. Because God told him he had to. Back in chapter 23, right? The Lord comes to him yet another vision. And stood by him and said, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, in our passage, same thing. An angelic vision evidently comes to him in the night. And he said, the angel said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar in in Rome. So there's a sense in which God sent Paul into this storm. He sent him there. Um, Clearly, clearly then, the presence of suffering in your life does not always result from the presence of sin in your life. It doesn't. There is not a one-to-one correspondence between your suffering and and your sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Sin has consequences. You can bring a whole pile of suffering into your world by choosing to sin. But all suffering is not as a result of your personal sin. There are many causes of suffering. The sin of others may cause you to suffer. Just living in a broken world can cause you to suffer, right? Neighbor kids get the flu, you get the flu, okay? Not a result of any sin on your part. Just spiritual warfare can cause you to suffer. 
spiritual opposition to the gospel. Um, so in light of that, especially that last truth, spiritual or suffering can actually increase when you are obedient to God as a result of spiritual opposition. And this has plainly been true in Paul's case up until now, at least, as we've watched him, right? He's been pursued, beaten, arrested, tried uh, by those who opposed his message, the message of Jesus Christ. He's on this boat as a result of their charges against him. No fault of his own. See, we see in Paul's life that the plan of God is about something bigger and more beautiful than our comfort. It involves much comfort, but it is about something bigger and more beautiful um, than, than that. And we see in Paul's life, it's true for us too, it involves taking the message of hope in Christ to all peoples, and that may very well, often in fact, does involve suffering. I mean, um, think with me through some of the reports I have gotten probably in the last three months from our missionaries, our missionaries. Um, we had two families move back from China because both wives contracted health issues that they simply could not live in that country anymore. A family who found out their little boy is deaf in one ear while far away from family over there. Another little boy who fell and had to go to the hospital for uh, stitches. Mercifully, I think he was, he was under five. If you're older than five, parents cannot stay in the hospital with you in this country. And he had to have stitches and spend the night there. Um, another had... Uh, the sorrow of a miscarriage far away from family. Still another had their home broken into and they were attacked literally by a machete-wielding gang and were robbed in their own home. Um, and then there are the inevitable death of loved ones while you are half a world away. See, they don't get a pass on suffering because they are doing God's work, right? Not at all. As they live near the center of the will of God for them, which they understand for them, it means that they were to go. The suffering can actually get worse. And so the first thing I want you to see is that Paul encountered hardship and great suffering while he's right at the center of God's will. But we also see and the second thing I'll underscore in Paul's story is that we see that God was actively working in the midst of that hardship, okay? He's working in and for Paul, Paul himself. He delivered Paul first from the storm, then from the shipwreck, even from the soldiers who wanted to kill all the prisoners. I don't know if you caught that part, but the soldiers' plan in verse 42 was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Right? Now, back in the very early verses of this passage, verse 3, you remember Julius, the same centurion. He, he says he was kind to Paul. 
and he let him get off the ship and get replenished by his friends at that very first port. He gave him that kindness. Um, it's indicative of a care for Paul that now has resulted again in actually sparing Paul's life when the men under his charge would have killed him to keep him from escaping. So of all people, the one who's keeping Paul in prison, the centurion, is the one who extends first a kindness on shore and now the sparing of his very life. Um, God's at work. We'll see in part of chapter 28, I don't want to have time to read it to you today, but the early part of chapter 28, Paul, um, God delivers Paul from snake bite as well, and he shipwrecks him on, a, on an island of kind folk who lavish kindness on, on him. And as we see in this, uh, this angelic messenger who comes to Paul in, in the middle of the night, um, he visits Paul on the worst of his days when all hope was lost. God loves to draw near to his people in their suffering. Over and over again, the Bible teaches that God is our comfort. The, the prophet Isaiah wrote about it repeatedly. Here's an example. He says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I, God says, will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. To a suffering people, God commends comfort. He will comfort. He will be our comfort. So this week, uh, we had a family encounter pretty severe health issues, and the mom has to go to the hospital. It's a pretty serious, pretty serious situation. And Jake and Rob uh, go over to visit her and make sure they're doing okay, and to pray God's mercy on her and their family. And uh, they go over, they do the visit, they come back, and I say, so how's she doing? And Jake looks at me, and he said, look, we went over to encourage her. She encouraged us. Okay. How, do, how, does, that, how does that happen? Okay. It happens like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, God draws near in suffering and brings comfort to his people, comfort that's so lavish that they are in the midst of their suffering able to pass it on and comfort others. And it's in the midst of this suffering, of course, that God is forming us. He is making us. In, in really interesting ways, he's making us like Jesus. P Peter liked to talk about this. And he says, what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we are following in his steps in our suffering as we do the will of the Lord. And this perspective of a God who enters into our suffering and shows us how to live life by his example of suffering is unique to the Christian faith. 
There's an author, his name is John Dixon, and he writes about speaking on this theme, the wounds of God, this theme that we're talking about at a university campus. He says, after his speech, the chairperson asked the audience for questions. He says, without delay, a man in his mid-30s, a Muslim leader at the university, stood up and proceeded to tell the audience how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe would be subjected to the forces of his own creation. That he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on the cross. Dixon and the man evidently went back and forth for about 10 minutes during which the man insisted that the notion of God having wounds, whether physical or emotional, was not only illogical since the creator of causes could not possibly be caused pain by a lesser entity, it was outright blasphemy as stated in the Quran. This is what Dixon writes as he reflects on that. He says, I had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. He said the debate was probably too amicable for either approach anyway, but he says, in the end, I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between the Islamic conception of God and that described in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. And in keeping with those wounds, we know that our God has great compassion for our suffering, for our wounds. And so he often draws us very near in our suffering, very near to him. Just as he does to Paul on that ship, he sends an angel. Okay, you may not get an angel, but God will often, you'll you'll know it. He'll draw near to you and bring you comfort in your darkest most terrible, horrible night. But, but if we don't look through the eyes of faith, it's, you miss this, right? The terrible horribleness of your day will swallow it up. And so the way that you keep the hardships from swallowing up the breadcrumbs of kindness that God is leaving all along the way is a practice, a spiritual discipline called thanksgiving. Where every day you give thanks for what God has done for you. And if, trust me, if we can look back through Paul's day and see it, you'll see it in yours. The kindness of God is there. Nancy Ortberg writes that when she was a registered nurse, uh, one of her earliest patients was a young girl about 14 who had been in a dirt bike accident. She said, met this young girl down in the physical therapy department. She was in a whirlpool bath. I had read her chart before I went down to work with her and had learned that as a result of the accident, her leg had been amputated before the knee. Okay, she's 14 years old. She says, I couldn't imagine what it, what it must be like to be a 14-year-old girl with part of your leg missing. She says, I introduced myself. We made some small talk, and through the course of our time together, I learned that she was a follower of Christ. But what I was not prepared for was her spirit especially when she lifted up her freshly amputated leg above the bubbling water for me to see and said, look how much I have left. She excitedly told me that since the doctors were able to amputate below the knee, it was much easier to fit a prosthesis. She wondered how long it would take to heal so that she could get started with that. She says, Nancy says, I heard most of what she was saying, but I really wasn't paying much attention. My mind was fixed back on the, look how much I have left. 
her gratitude, she says, seemed gen really genuine. It wasn't denial or a Pollyanna mentality. She knew she was missing a good part of her leg, <clears throat> and she would not have chosen that. But she was so very thankful for this bit of good news. Her spirit, Nancy writes, made my spirit soar that day. And I had two good legs. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God. Do you practice the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving? Not just once a year, every day. Every day do you practice the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving, of daily giving thanks, because that is what will train your eye to see the breadcrumbs of God's kindness on the terrible, horrible days. And we can see them as we read Paul's story. It's there. Not only was God active for Paul's good, but he's also active through Paul for the good of others. As we saw back in, in those verses, around verse 31 or so and following, Paul literally saves the others' lives on the ship by keeping those sailors from abandoning ship. He's on that ship for the preservation of 275 lives are saved because Paul is there. And he brings great encouragement to them. Okay, this is fascinating. Day's about to dawn. Paul urges them all to eat, saying, Today's the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food. It'll give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread giving thanks to God in the presence of all. By his example, he's giving thanks to God in the midst of the worst storm they've ever been in. And they began to eat, and they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And let me tell you that encouragement to people without hope is off the charts important. Craig alluded to it when he talked about what the Hope Counseling Center does. Um, and he also said that some of you are uniquely qualified to give that hope because God has comforted you in a similar affliction. Okay. There's, a, there's a lady in our church. She has uh, two pretty rare, pretty complicated, uh, really troubling diagnoses. And oddly, along comes another lady in our church with the same exact same two pretty rare, pretty complicated, troubling diagnoses. Exact, not one diagnosis, but two. And so the lady that suffered a little longer in this, uh, I'm watching, she's encouraging the one who's new in this suffering. God is redeeming suffering for good. He's that good. He's that great. God is working through Paul. He's redeeming our suffering for the good of others. He's working in Paul for his good and through Paul for the good of his shipmates and fellow sufferers. 
If you had to suffer for the good of someone else, would you? See, it seems to me that that this is one of the marks of Christ, wouldn't you say? That this is what the cross is all about. Great suffering for the good of another. And if we believe God to be sovereignly good, that is able to bring good to and through us in all things, we ought to expect him to mark us with suffering too, that we might again, as Peter said, walk in his steps and through our suffering bring good to another. God redeems our suffering, not just for our good, but for the good of others as well. And, and we, in addition, we see in this, what, what's God doing? He's working out his plan, right? In this crazy, horrible, terrible, horrible storm, God is working out his plan. Uh, remember how the book of Acts started? Way back in the beginning. Um, Acts 1.8, right? Outline of the book. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And it's, it's unfolding. See, in the mind of people in Jerusalem, Judea, to go to Rome, that's the end of the civilized world. That's as far as they could imagine. And so where's Paul going with the gospel? He's going to Rome. And you remember how that all started with Paul? What did God say to him in, in chapter 9 on that Damascus road? The Lord said to, um, to him, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Paul's going where? To Caesar. He's going to testify of Christ before Caesar. Through this suffering journey, the gospel is heading to Rome. And Paul would stand before Caesar and testify. I, I often benefit from the writings of Eugene Peterson, and he says... The Christian life is going to God. That's what it is. It's going to God. And in going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same government, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is, he says, that each step we walk... Each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. So, so then we would say these kinds of days, they may well be terrible and horrible and even very bad, but in God's sovereignly good hands, they are not no good. We can't say that about our days. We can't say that they are no good days because God is at work, even in the suffering, seeding good through our days, our worst days, our darkest days. He is at work in our hardship for us and in us and through us. So, one more observation on Paul's terrible day, and that is this. Even when hardship comes... God's word is still wholly trustworthy. 
Verse 23, Paul's telling the troubled shipmates, right? This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Promise that he's going to go to Rome. And behold, God has granted you all these who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Exactly. So when God speaks through his angel, even amidst the worst storm these sailors have ever seen, his word comes true. Paul is saved to go to Rome, as God prophesied that he must. Everybody on the ship survives, as God said it would happen. The ship runs aground, just like God said it would happen. You know, the next section, we don't have time to look at this morning, the next few verses of chapter 28, Paul gets snake bit, right? And all the locals think, ooh, that's a poisonous snake. He's going to swell up and die. And nothing happens. Again, what do we see? We see the promise of God being protected and fulfilled because Paul has to testify to Caesar. No poisonous snake is going to take him down. Okay? No storm is going to take him down. It's not going to mitigate and violate the promise of God that he must go and stand before Caesar. God is being true to his word. Now, the temptation for us is to say, look, look, look. Give me the angel. Bring the angel. Angel shows up. Tells me what God's got for me. I'm good with that. Okay? Don't make me read a book. I want an angel. Okay? Now, what you have to realize is that usually these angelic appearances, they happened while you were asleep. Okay? They came in visions and dreams, and they'd say, because it happens. Paul says, last night an angel stood before me. These are usually dreams and visions kind of all together. So, I mean, think with me. Um, you ever wake up from a dream and wonder if it was real or not? And then as you're coming out of the fog, you try to remember the details of the dream. And they're just kind of drifting away. Now imagine that you try to convince your best friend that an angel showed up in your dreams and told you to go to Washington, D.C. and preach to President Obama. Okay? You know, we have a surer revelation. It has been tested for centuries, for millennia, by countless thousands, even millions who've gone before us. It is, it is full of promises like this. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, that's Jesus, is able to help those who are being tempted. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And those who know your name, Lord, put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You are a hiding place for me, God. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God, you say, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See, such, such is a sampling, a small sampling of the promises of God for his people in their suffering, written down for us to read and to reread and to meditate on and to memorize and to claim and to live our terrible, horrible, very bad days. They're not no good anymore. See, Paul's story of shipwreck and hardship is really the backdrop for God's story to play out. For the gospel, the good news of Christ to spread amongst all peoples, to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome. And so is our story of shipwreck days, of terrible, horrible, very bad days. They are terrible, and they're horrible, and they're very bad. But in God's hands, they are no longer no good. There's good there. He is with us. They are occasions for God to show himself to be sovereign and good and wholly trustworthy. Now, this is a great act of faith for those of you who are in places of suffering and hardship. And so what we'd like to do as we close, the worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in closing song, and if, you, if you're an Alexander, right, you're having a string of those days, uh, we would just like to encourage you to make your way down here and, and let one of our elders um, come alongside you and pray for you, or if you want to bring a friend to pray for you, um, but if you're in a hard place, uh, then you should welcome the prayers of God's people upon you for grace and mercy that you might have faith to walk through this hardship and experience God's strength and mercy. So if you'll stand with us,